This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players at Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. What is up, my friends? Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. The Bass Freaks podcast is a place to gain some insight and inspiration as well as learn a little something about some truly amazing bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today's guest is Oscar Cartaya. Oscar has had a long and prolific career as a bassist, solo artist, composer, producer, arranger, and musical director, working with artists such as Spirajara, Herb Alpert, Jennifer Lopez, Tito Puente, Celia Cruz, just to name a few. Uh, he's had an amazing career playing pretty much every genre of music from Latin to rock, funk, R&B, and even country music, taking styles from all the places he's lived, like uh, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, New York, and Los Angeles, to basically create his very own unique style. Oscar, welcome to the Bass Freaks podcast, man. How you doing? Thank you so much for having me. It's all good. It's all good, my brother. Man, that you got some depth in your voice. That is, you know, you got to oh, be a bass player. I don't know. You should have caught me at 7 a.m. That's when I'm a, a serious FM DJ. You know, by, <laughs> <laughs> by now I already went in like a fifth off of my, my low range in the morning. Yeah. Uh, so. You got the Barry White happening. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Dude, how are you, man? I'm doing good, man. Just uh, enjoying the summer. It's been, uh, you know, pretty heck good, but uh, this is what we do. So uh, obviously the last couple of years hasn't been the norm. So pretty much I talk to a lot of my peers and everybody feels like almost like that out of shape feeling like you started the season without a, a proper spring training oh, yeah. kind of thing. I yeah. got you. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that. <laughs> Well, I want to get into that a little bit as well. But first, I want to go a little bit back, 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 back. Let's take it way back. When Bergman, yes. Way back. So what got you interested in the bass? How old were you when you started? Uh, listen, man, I, I always tell the same story and over and over because they say the easiest thing to remember is the truth. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I believe as a kid, I only had two ambitions and one of them was to play for the Yankees and the other one was to do music. I mean, my doc documentation of my childhood is me with little photos dressed as a baseball player or with a little plastic guitar, a little keyboard, a drum set, something. So this went on pretty much throughout my childhood. I played little league and all of that stuff. And then I already was getting more interest in music. At age 10, uh, I started studying uh, acoustic Spanish guitar. Okay. And a guy would come over my house. I remember it was $5 a lesson. What was his you name? Know, what was his name? I have no idea. <laughs> you remember how much it was though. <laughs> yeah, well, because, I mean, at that time, we, we thought it was like a lot for a lesson. It was like, okay, you know, and the guy will come, but he will come to your house. Got you. And, and I learned acoustic guitar, a Spanish guitar. And that lasted for like maybe six months into one day I was watching TV and in Puerto Rico, it's a traditional that at noon 
almost every network has uh like a variety show going on. It's the time that everybody's at their house having lunch and, and stuff like that. So the shows will be little comedy skits and then live music and raffles and this and that. And they always had live music uh, playing, mostly Latin music and stuff. So I remember a guy playing an upright bass and I, I saw it and it just looked so cool, you know, and everything. So I took my, the guitar that I had and I cut my mom's broom and I tape the stick to the guitar so I can play it standing up. Yes. I mean, yeah. it was completely looks. I had no idea what I was doing. It didn't sound like anything, but I looked cool just in front of the mirror playing the acoustic please, guitar with please a stick. Please tell me you have a picture of that somewhere. I swear I, somebody didn't think. Then somebody didn't have the foresight of thinking, hmm, something, <laughs> something's gonna happen from this. So <laughs> that went on. And then maybe a few months later, it was a Sunday. And my dad was reading the newspaper and I came up to him and I said, I'm going to be a musician. And he looked, he would lift his eyes and he went, okay. And kept on reading. That was the extent of my conversation of what I wanted to do with my life. And, so, the, and the rest is history. As okay. They say, All yeah. right. Well, uh, did you ever get to play with the Yankees ever? Uh, actually, I have gotten to play with Yankee players because uh, fortunately enough, uh, number 51, Bernie Williams, which was an all-star Yankee, uh, played almost 20 years between farm system and playing with the Yankees. It's a friend of mine. We were classmates. We went to school together. No way. Okay. Yes. So back in the uh, 90s when I lived in New York, uh, I have... A few dear friends. Uh, the one of them is called Mark Quinones. He's a percussionist. He's played. He played with the Almond Brothers for 22 years. Now he's out with the Doobie Brothers. So I always kid on him that uh, you only play with brothers band. <laughs> but we we've been playing in New York since the early 80s together. So between Mark Quinones, another dear friend of mine called Tony Centron, a drummer, he somehow knew Paul O'Neill, which was the uh, right field for the Yankees back in the 90s. So now we got Bernie Williams and Paul O'Neill. And there was two other Yankees that like to dabble in the music world, but they weren't as talented as them too. We will go to the clubhouse at the, at the old Yankee stadium and they will be set up with drums, guitars, bass amp and everything. And we would jam with them before a game and then go out and sit and watch the game. Uh, and uh, I remember one time Mark brought, brought some Sildjian cymbals for Paul O'Neill. Okay. For, and he was like a little kid in the candy. So, I mean, this is a multimillionaire baseball player excited about some symbols that a, <laughs> that a guy brought him. Like, so we're sitting at the, you know, we jam. Now it's time to go and watch the game. We're sitting there and the announcer goes, well, Paul O'Neill is happy today. He got some new symbols from the percussionists of the Almond Brothers. And we're looking at each other and go, I guess that was you. you know? <laughs> so to, okay. to recap, the closest that I got to play with the Yankees is to play with a Yankee, which is uh, Bernie. We, and, that, and funny enough, two weeks ago, there's a jazz club here called Catalina Bar and Grill. Uh -huh. And Bernie, after he retired his baseball career, he went into Manhattan School of Music and he finished his master's degree in jazz composition. He is a completely bona fide guitar player that has been playing guitar, you know, making a living as a guitar player for the last 15 years. So we've been playing and working on a project and we did a show two weeks, all-star game day, we played here in LA, uh, a show. What? Okay, what's the project called? 
It's called Los Esparatriados. Okay, you're going to have to explain to me what that means. Yeah, it's, it's funny <laughs> enough because it's three guys. It's a drummer called Pepe Jimenez. He lives in Vegas. Uh, he was the guy that was playing with Santana right, be, right after Dennis Chamber left and before Cindy Blackman started playing. He covered that span, that span of time. Bernie and myself, all three of us, went to the same performing arts school in Puerto Rico. So oh, cool. we've known each other since junior high school. Uh, uh, Espatriado is, is a Spanish slang for expatriate, you know, people that are out of their homeland, that they've been, you know, forced to leave. And that's us three. We've been out of Puerto Rico for quite some time now. So jokingly, we were talking. We said, man, we just got to like, we got to get this thing together. We'll call it lo Espatriado. And it was, and it became a joke that actually happened. So we are starting, our first official gig was at Catalina. Right a couple on. of weeks ago, Catalina Jasper. Yeah, that was, that was great. I mean, that was, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, when you know somebody and, he, and everybody has done fairly well in their fields, you know, Bernie as a baseball player, uh, Pepe as a drummer and his career, myself and the bass. But when we get together, we are three high school buddies, just, you know, like remembering when we were like throwing stuff at each other and running around. So it, it, that comes across in the music, Ah, that okay. kind of a looseness of, uh, you know, people in the audience are, are, must be going, Oh my God, that was the center field for the Yankee for 15 years. Oh, that's the guy that played with Santana. And that's the bass player for spiral. And you know, it's like, you don't care about that. It's like, you can't <laughs> impress me with what you've done. I known you right. this long. It's like, uh, so uh, that's the best. That's yes, it's, it's very promising as far as like the 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 sense of of the camaraderie of, of play, making music with people that you've known for this long, and uh, you can't go wrong. You just have yeah. a good time. Amazing, amazing, and I'm sure at some point in your career, if not multiple times, you've played at Yankee Stadium. I've done like once or twice. Okay, you know, performing, and it's just like. Well, I wish I was here with a uniform, but this is good enough, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're playing just in a different yeah, way, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so you picked up the broomstick and your your toy guitar, and you, <laughs> that's what you wanted to do. Tell me about your first gig, gig, gig. Um, I started playing professionally when I was like 15 years old. Oh, okay. Because now, uh. Once I, once I decided that music was going to be my life, my dad only had one demand or request or whatever you want to call it. He said, okay, you can be a musician. I got no problem with that, but you got to be a serious musician. I don't want you to be just like a, you know, a bar, you know, guy or you know, you're going to do that music. You're going to do this the, the right way. So right there, they enroll me. Puerto Rico had a, a performing or still has a performing art school. What's it called? called Escuela Libre de Musica. Mm. Uh, and what it is, it's, it's for lack of a better definition, it was like a fame kind of school. Okay. You know, you go there in the morning, you do, uh, depending if you were in middle school, you would do your academics first. I mean, your music first, and then your academics in the afternoon. If you were in high school, then you do, uh, uh academic in the morning and music in the afternoon. So it was a whole day school. I was enrolled in that school and. That's why I, my first, when I started studying bass, the first thing that I studied was acoustic bass, 
so my first six years of playing were mostly acoustic bass, orchestra, symphony, youth orchestra, chamber music, the whole nine yard. But the moment you leave school, now it's like, you know, you want to play dance music and you want to play all the Latin stuff. And that's what I was doing. I was leaving, living this uh, duplicitous kind of life. I would be the classical guy at school and then the salsa head at night. Okay. <laughs> and uh, started playing with little bands. It, by the time I was in, uh, in, in my senior year in high school, I, I, I worked full time as a professional musician and, you know, come, come sometimes to my house at one, two in the morning and I was getting up at five to go to school. So I'll be in my classrooms like <laughs> nodding and teachers are going, Carthaya, did you work last night? I'm like, yes, I do. It's like, okay. <laughs> like, you know, like, oh, I'm playing now. I, I don't have time to study. It's like, no, buddy, you, you still got to show a commitment to everything that you're doing and your academics and good. You're starting to develop in, in, in the industry. So, so what kind of impact do you think that that had on, on your career and on your development as a musician and, and really as a, as a person? Well, it was extremely important because, uh, <clears throat> growing up in Puerto Rico, uh, it, the, the mindset over there, and I'm talking about, you know, the eighties that has changed a lot now. It was that as a musician, if you wanted to make a living as a musician in Puerto Rico, you had to be a well-rounded musician in the sense that you had to read music. You had to know your instrument. You, you just couldn't, uh, there wasn't that, that many jam band situations. Gotcha. So in order to, even if you go play uh, a, a wedding, a sweet 15, whatever it was, it's always like a, like a band that will hand you the book here. And the way that you make your way up in the scene as a player was for your ability to perform on pressure situations. So the recording scene, the, uh, the bigger shows, the bigger bands was all about what is your musicianship, your, your playing skills, uh, your sound and everything. That's how you went on. So of course the, the pressure is like, I have to, you know, I have to read this stuff. I have to be a good reader. I have to you know this. And, and that's how I was first in the mindset of that's what being a good musician is. I have to be uh, able to sight read pretty much anything they put in front of me. I gotta, you know, I gotta, and at that point, improvisation wasn't something that it was any part of the curriculum because there wasn't that many uh, opportunities or chances for improvising. You know, the, the, the role of a bass player was strictly that, a bass player. And, um, and the bands every weekend, every night or anytime was a different situation. So it wasn't like, this is the music for this band, go learn it. And then we got some gigs, you know. Got you. You're working uh, hotel shows, uh, concert recordings. So that was my mindset. And that's what I really developed at an early age. It wasn't until I came to study here in the States that I was in a shock because now my reading skills were very, uh, you know, advanced, but I could not hear a doorknob. I mean, like if you knock on the door, I couldn't even figure out what note, what that, that was my ears. <laughs> I didn't depend on my ears that much. So when people started you. giving me cassettes to learn songs for a performance, it was like, learn what was the chart? Oh, there's no charts. It's like, really? Oh, <laughs> you, I need to memorize this. So your mem my memorizing skills in, in 
being able to take things down was something that I had to learn. And um, that's what I found that it was very interesting. That was my first culture shock was that of, of growing, getting a call to play and somebody handing me a list of 20 songs for the gig and expecting me to know them all. And it was like, what? You do your mind? <laughs> so that, that took a moment. And, and then I started working at that. And it, that's a whole other set of skills. Right. Of being able to memorize music and being, being able to listen to something once or twice and take it down. And even when I started going to sessions and they'll play, the, they'll play a demo and I'll be looking for the chart and there's no chart. It's like, no, that's the demo. You know, that, it's like, oh, OK. Uh, you know, and I'm like panicking and we're like, what, what chord was that? Where's, where does it go? So what were some of the exercises that you did to actually um, perfect that skill? Uh, I started trying to figure out because we know that every song is going to have sections. So instead of learning a song beginning to end, I will learn the sections of the song because I know some part was going to be repeated at some point. So if I know this was the groove for the verse, I remember that's the verse groove or the, you know, the verse chord progression or the verse line. Then sometimes the chorus is a little bit different. So now, I got two sections and the way that I started making my, my cheat sheets is like, I'll, I'll write verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, bridge, chorus out. And then by having the structure already of what's going on and memorizing what lines was for each part, now it helped. And then uh, yeah. like everything, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a method that you on developing the more you do it and you start remembering this and your memory starts to increase. It's like you go from a, a 20 gig memory to a gigabyte. It's like, oh, how <laughs> I expanded, you know. How so, much did you pay for that? <laughs> uh, the hard work, right, you know. Right, right, yeah. So right. eventually I started, I was able to hear things quicker and I was able to memorize things quicker. Uh, and then now, at the same time, I didn't want to lose my reading skills because th those had been pivotal at one point in my life. So it was creating a balance of, of all the stuff that, that became uh, a little bit of a challenge. Right. I got you. Two important sides yeah. of, of the, uh, the fence there. Yeah. Of everything. Um, You've worked with some huge artists in, in multiple genres of music. Um, what is your secret to being a chameleon, I guess you can say, stylistically? Uh, well, first of all, you must be, uh, you, you must love the challenge. And that's something that I always have liked. Uh, some people uh, seek comfort, comfort zone, you know, like something where they, they feel at ease and this is, this is what I do and this is uh, where I know I can manage. I always have strived for the opposite. I like to be thrown into the lion with a toothpick and <laughs> figure it out because uh, my personality, my, my whole way of being is always, the more I, I have learned this, not that I knew this is a formula, but I figure I learned throughout the years that the, 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 the harder or the more uh, the situation that, that it requires me to figure things out, the better I perform because I managed to 
focused, you know, like that tunnel vision. I can, uh, I have ADD, bro. I'm all over the place, everywhere. <laughs> I'm the guy that tries to do five things at the same time. And that seems normal for me. Other, other people would just go, what in the world? Finish one thing. I was like, I can't. So when, when I have too many things going on, I am like, all over, but when I have to do one thing and everything, then there's like all these things, all, all these other outlets that I have, they all go to into one point. And it's like, shoo, and then that's when you become like laser focused. And if I say, if I'm playing, with a jazz group and then the next day I get a call to play with a pop artist and then the other the next day I'm going uh, out with a Latin band it always had I always had to figure out how to get things done the best possible way and okay. I will go in there and do my homework and learn the stuff and and uh, know the styles and all of that stuff that for some people it's 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 chaotic it's like they don't want that pressure they know it's like i don't you know i don't i don't feel comfortable with that for me it, it was like accelerate you know like russia like <laughs> don't, don't try to put me in 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 a, in a ferris wheel or any of those things i can't handle that there's people <laughs> see them and go yeah you know? yeah so that's the equivalent of music okay the, the challenge I, I welcome it because it's like, okay, I got to figure this one out. And, and then we make it happening once. And once, you know, it's a matter of having that, uh, that sense of knowing it can, it can be done. Right. You know, okay. It, then you just figure out how is it that needs to be done? There's, there's, I never have the insecurity and in, even some from an early age that I couldn't get a gig done. Another, I never showed up to a situation that I felt like, oh, shoot. Oh, my, you know, but, like. But, but you're going in there prepared. Well, I try, but I'm saying when you're throwing to the lion's end, I will figure out a way of getting out alive, okay. you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And that yeah, means, I get it. you know, I can, I will pull things from the, from the hat that I didn't even know were there. So, <laughs> It, it's just that sense of knowing it's going to get done. Right. And once it's done, you said, I don't know how I did it, but I, you know, I knew I was going to do it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're, you're also known for providing, uh, well, a huge tone. I did yesterday. I did a deep dive of some of your solo stuff and your tone is, uh, I was about to say uh, something probably shouldn't say on on air here, but damn, amazing, awesome. So go ahead. Back Thank to what you. You're Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yes, I, I I believe that um, you know, like everybody has, you know, they're they're self conscious about you know people. I don't like my I don't like my toes. Uh, I don't like my hair. My, and then there's always something that you go, oh, you know, I think my nose is pretty, or in my case. <laughs> of my general presentation as a, as a basis, as an artist, whatever, the thing that I feel the most comfortable and I know that is something that I have really worked hard is my tone. Uh, I'm not saying, um, uh, you know, my chops or, or my, my this. It's just the sound that I have always heard in my head and I ambition to project. That's the one thing that I know that uh, I have been able to accomplish the most. And it all started from, I credit it from playing acoustic bass. 
because when I started, I had a really crazy teacher. And this is back in, uh, back in the early days. He will hit me. He will spit. I mean, he was what, like, what? what? Oh, no, no, no. But, wait, wait. Let me, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. So it, that's the sound that you no. <laughs> He was like one of these crazy mad professors. I mean, with like the handkerchief coming out and <laughs> no, oh. no, no, no. So he would like push you and and he go, no, 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 no. You know, and, and, I, and this is a, this is one of these moments where I wish this show had video included because seeing your, your interpretation of your teacher is priceless. Listen, let me put it this way. When school started, I, I'd studied with him for six years. So check this out. Every, when, when school starts, the, 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 the school year starts, they will assign, uh, you know, your teachers. This is your guitar teacher. This is your violin teacher, your bass teacher, whatever. For as long as I remember, it always started with like an average of maybe 40, 50 students. In August, when school starts, by May, there was three or four. Oh. <laughs> Everybody else will like quit, change instruments, leave. I was consistently from day one until I graduated, I always stayed with him. He was my teacher, but he was so intense and his whole family. He was the first viola of the symphony orchestra. His other brother was the first violin. His other brother was the first cellist. His sister was the dean of the whole, you know, so this is, this is a family of musical genius. And these people were like so intense that they, you swim or you sink. There was no in between. You learn the stuff the right proper way or you run. <laughs> and he, he took me and he always was going like, no, 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 there's no tone. There's no tone. There's no sound, you know, and like, I remember, this is how crazy it was. I remember there was an exercise and I'm going and I was playing a B natural and it was supposed to be a B flat. And he goes, no, 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 B flat, B flat. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, I did it like three times in a row. He grabbed me by the ear and he started going B flat, B flat, B flat, B flat, B flat, B flat. He said it like 20 times. And I'm standing there holding my bass, trembling. I mean, I'm 13, 14 years old. Guess what? I play the B flat the next time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was that kind of intensity that I knew I had to, to like live up to. And that made me aware of tone. And I always, I figure out the only elements between me getting sound is a piece of wood in my hands. Because in acoustic bass, there's no amps, there's no chord, there's no preamp, there's no pickup. It was hit the bass and I. So I started at an early age looking for like how my, my bass can cover the room or how, how I can get a lot of tone out of it. Once I started playing electric bass, I brought that mindset of, I want this to be like, you know, an A-bomb when I dropped this, Boom, I want to cover as much as I can. I want it to fit. I want, I want that feeling of, of this is a bass. This is not, you know, a guitar, uh, uh, you know, this is the low end. And I started building everything around that. Uh, Jacko, I remember reading, he said, the sound is in my hands. I don't know how much true does that statement carry, but I have witnessed through my whole life when you get one instrument, say an electric bass, and five guys will play it, it will sound five different ways. Yeah. 
not touching anything, not touching the amp, not touching the bass, anything. You grab it and you give it to different guys. So yes, big part has to be your hands and how you approach this thing and, and how do you play it and whatever. So going back to your original statement, yes, thank you. Uh, has always been uh, my, my core uh, part of everything. And once I started writing and producing, I always felt that I'm a builder and I need a good foundation to put anything on top. The, 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 the more solid my foundation is, the more crap I can put on top and it will hold it. So as an arranger, as when I started producing, when I started doing stuff, I always wanted to have a solid foundation on stuff and then start putting, you know, keyboards, guitars, metal, everything. But I build, my concept always has been from the bottom up. Okay. And other people, because of their instruments that they play, they always think of their instrument and then start. So maybe sometimes you have an inverted pyramid, which is not the most stable thing. You know, if you put the, the little point in the bottom and then it's big on the top, it's like, no. Yeah. And, uh, that's my approach. Okay. I dig that. I dig that. Um, you mentioned Jocko. Um, but who were some of your other early influences? Uh, naturally, growing up in Puerto Rico, I, I first was introduced to legendary Latin bass players. Uh, there's, uh, there's a Cuban master that pretty much everybody in the Latin music knows called Israel Lopez, known as Cachao. Mm. Cachao was one of the pioneers of uh, making the transition from uh, what it used to be like socialites and uh, bougie Latin dance music to more of a of a Afro-Caribbean jam kind of thing. And he started playing bass lines that into this day, anybody that plays any kind of stuff, when they play one of those lines, you know, oh, that was Cachao, you know, uh, so... You. Uh, that was one of my big influences first. Uh, there's a bass player called Bobby Rodriguez from New York, New York City of Puerto Rican descent that he played with the late Tito Puente, with the late Tito Rodriguez. He played with all the bands, 40s, 50s, and 60s, all the way to uh, the 80s. Known for his solid grooves and everything. So these are the guys that when you got a record back in the day, most of them were playing on. Then, as, I, as, as the music started to evolve, Latin music, it went through the same period that, like, say, R&B, funk music, soul music went through. Uh, you got a guy like Chuck Rainey that he came in and started doing double stops, and, he's, and he was doing, like, you know, all the other stuff. Well, there was a bass player called Sal Cuevas back in late 70s, 80s, all the way to the 90s that he revolutionized. Latin bass player, any guy my age and under and, and even for, they'll all been influenced by Sal Cuevas because he took Latin music and he started doing stuff that nobody had been doing before. He started slapping on it. He started doing double stop. He started tapping. And wow. yeah, so now I'm a 16, 17 year old kid playing the stuff in this guy. And I'm thinking this guy, where did he come from this? You know, and like, at that point, I had not find out who Chuck Rainey was, who Abe Lavorio was, who James Jamers. I mean, I have no idea, but this guy grew up listening to all of those guys and incorporated it into Latin music. Mm. 
and he he opened he opened Pandora's box for so many players that we just went down that rabbit hole following. And through that, then we started discovering other stuff. So now when I get to high school, I mostly have been listening to Latin music and, and Latin players and stuff like that. And a friend of mine brought a Return to Forever record to school and uh, sh- showed it to me. And he goes, oh, you look like this guy. And, he, and I turned back the record. It was Stanley Clark, you know, uh. <laughs> you know, and, and back in the day I had like a, like a quasi Afro, which was a not, it was just like a lot of hair sticking up. <laughs> and I look at it and I go like, yeah, you know, and I was playing acoustic bass and starting on my electric and he, he said, oh yeah, you know, he plays both me too. Oh. Yeah. Fast forward. So now I come here to the States and I start listening to so many players and I discovered the Will Lees. And like I said, Abe Lavorio, once I find out that he was Mexican, I was like, what, really? And he plays with, you know, with Lee Rittenauer and Larry Carlton and and this, and you know, like, wow, this guy is amazing. So Abe was a huge influence. Uh, in New York, there's a bass player called Francisco Centeno, great bass player also from that late 70s, early 80s scene. Um, I mean, the list goes on of guys. Then Marcus is starting to make his, uh, his way in the scene because Marcus started so young. I mean, like at 17, he's already playing with Lenny White and recording. So I started finding more and more of other players that I was going, wow. Will Lee, uh, one of my dearest side bass players on earth because this guy is, he is also one of the inspirations of, it doesn't matter. He can play with Bette Midler or, or like Don Grolnick. It doesn't matter. He's comfortable at any situation. So you start, uh, what was that movie? Uh, uh, there was a robot that uh, Johnny number five. Something. Oh yeah. Uh, that short, uh, short circuit. Short, short circuit. Yeah. Yes. I was that robot with, with like, bass and you know bass players and stuff i could there was still tower records yeah and then you can go to tower records and they had listening stations and i will go to tower records and i literally i will spend maybe five six hours because i couldn't afford to buy every record i wanted so i would just sit there and listen and like you know reading liner notes oh this is i miss doing that by the way Oh my God, that was, and I had a a dear friend of mine that we still close. He lives in Minneapolis. His name is Tony Axtell, one of the most talented guys I ever met that we went to school together. And him and I will sit station by station and listen to records. And we're like, you know, like (laughs) pointing at each other. And, and, and it was like, you know, the era that everything was happening. So now you got the, the New York sound with Marcus or Will Lee, uh, Steve Gadd, uh, Hiram Bullock, uh, Buddy Williams. And then the East Coast sound, I mean, the West Coast sound was more of Neil Steubenhaus or Nathan East and Abe Laborio, John Robinson. So it got to the point that we were like blindfolding and testing each other. Well, who played on this? And we're like, oh, listening. Uh, that's gotta be Abe. And I say, John Robinson. Yep. Correct. You know, okay. Who played, you know, because I was so laser focused on listening all the nuances of tones in general mm-hmm. in approach, groove, uh, the, the sound, uh, a West coast production 
sounded different than an East Coast production. I mean, once you start hearing, you can tell the difference of how this song, these guys played this and how these guys. So it, it was a fascinating era because it, it was, you can never get enough information. And I kept on like listening. And it was always, I, I remember seeing the very first night of David Letterman, you know, and we were going like, that's Will Lee on bass, bro. Oh, and Hybern on guitar, Steve <laughs> Jordan on drums. Oh, so, so it was glorious days. Amazing. So you're talking about being able to pick out these players and, and their styles and, and their work. Um, how important do you think it is for bass players to uh, find their own identity and their own voice in their playing, but not taken away from the gig that they may be on? As a, I guess it depends on what you want to do, but, but how important do you think it is for a bass player to have their own identity in their playing? Listen, I... I I try to tell this anytime that I do like a masterclass, a, a clinic, whatever. I said, we are all thieves. We steal as much as we can from every single person. Now, our, our job, our duty is to take that, process it, and spit it out with our own interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. So I have just stolen every possible thing from anybody that I heard and I love and, and appreciate and admire. So from Stanley to Marcus, to Jacko, to Jamerson, to Sal Cuevas, to Cachao, to, they all have done something that, that make me do like that, that twitch that you go, whoa, and you listen and then <laughs> you figure out what they did. It's like, uh-huh. Now what I do with that is what becomes me because if I keep on playing the same thing that they played, I'm just imitating them. Right. If I figure out how I'm gonna take that and make it mine, you know, I can say they were the inspiration, uh, they, they were the, the, what created the initial thought, but how I flip it and turn it into something that then eventually is me, that is how you start creating your own voice. Because we learn how to speak by hearing everybody. You know, that's how we develop speech as, a, as an infant. You hear your parents talk, you hear people talk, you put vocabulary together from things that they're teaching you, but you don't talk like your parent. You may sound like them because they were around you, your whole, you know, development, but you start developing your own voice. And then you got, you start getting your own little slangs and you go, yay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's what music is. We, we don't know one iota. We're trying to, figure out our our way, our voice, our tone, everything. What what tickles your fancy, what attracts you, then you gravitate towards that. And then you figure out, what, you know, wow, what tone was that? And you start looking for that tone in, in your amp or your bass or whatever. And then somehow you get to another place where you get to something that is not quite that, but it's 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 something that you like like more now, and oh, and you came up with your tone, and the same thing with your groove and your line. So we all have to listen to as many possible uh, situations, people as we can, and start taking that in, digesting it, and then making it your own. And that's how you develop. Uh, I don't believe nobody can tell you no i this i came up with my own concept and sound and style on my own because i'm saying and you are you lie like a rug you know <laughs> oh yeah. man i get that i got that yeah. um 
I meant to ask you, um, going back a little bit, how did you end up in the U S okay. When I, when I graduated high school, I went to the conservatory uh, of music in Puerto Rico for one year. And at that time, the conservatory in Puerto Rico, now they have brought in their departments and there's jazz department, contemporary music, but back then was strictly classic. So if, if you were to study all four years in the conservatory, all what you were getting was classical training. So pretty much grooming you to join either the symphony orchestra or just do anything. There was no electric uh, bass either. So electric bass, I was just studying on my own. And, uh, I was doing acoustic bass. So there was a, an incredible virtuoso bass player teaching at the, at the conservatory from Spain. His name, uh, the name was Juan Verdeguer, Manuel, Manuel Verdeguer, uh, guy, he will play cello concerts on acoustic bass, you know, like one of these gifted guys. But he was as old school as you can ever imagine. Uh, so I already was starting to get a taste of, you know, I have been playing professional now for like two or three years, playing my electric bass, playing my acoustic. I'm trying to find my balance of what I want to do, but I still, you know, it's bass. So I love it either, you know, I'm Boeing, I put it down, I want to slap, I put it down. This is these cubicles where you study at the conservatory. You can go in there with your instrument and you just practice. And one day I had my acoustic bass on the floor laying down on the floor and I was playing the electric bass and the, the professor opened the door and he looked at me and seeing me with the electric bass and seeing the acoustic bass in the floor, he had the, the face of disgust of like, he, he thought he would, he saw like, like, like some dead animal on the road <laughs> and he closed the door. And from that day on, I knew I'm done here because mm -hmm. this guy well, like I will go to the classes and he will just make life miserable. And I already has spent six years with my other crazy teacher that I thought I'm, I'm bulletproof after Be this flat. guy. Be flat. <laughs> no, this guy was like, you know, old, you know, old world mean. And it's like, yeah, that's good. Fine. You can go pray your electric bass. I was like, ah, so I said, you know what? I think I'm going to switch. And that's when I, uh, at that time, Musicians Institute, which was called back then BIT yeah. had, had barely started like two or three years. And uh, Jeff Berlin, Tim Bogard, uh, uh, Bob Magnuson, all of these guys were like teachers there. And I went like, you know what? I want to go to this place. And I apply and, and got in a plane and made it to California. Right on. And look you at know. you now. Yeah. Still trying to play acoustic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you've played a particular black Sadowski bass for a, a pretty long time. What is what is so special about that bass? Well, th that bass uh, is one of those instruments that, that develop a, a personality of its own. So we call him the TBS, the black Sadowski. Okay. And uh, when I... Uh, when I came to LA in 1982 to go to a musician's institute, I was here, I, I, I did a year program and then they offered me a, an instructor position. So I was teaching, like I graduated from school on a Saturday as a student and then started working as an instructor on Monday. 
Awesome. So, yeah, it was pretty crazy and not easy because the same guy that was my classmate, now I'm his instructor, and he was just like not having it. So, <laughs> so it was like being a gunslinger in the Wild West all day. You had to prove why you got this gig. And it was yeah. just like, you know, I'm 19, 20 years old. I want to play. Yeah. So I moved to New York. I get to New York and in the early 80s was the uh, the era that everybody was were getting their instruments like souped up, putting preamps and doing all sorts of things. And Roger was the person that that his association with Marcus had brought him to, you know, to the forefront. Uh, that was a new sound. You had not heard that kind of like bright, crispy tone from slap before. So everybody will be putting preamps in their bases and stuff. When I was still in school, I took a, a Yamaha BB 3000 that I had gotten and I took it to Roger. He took the, the P pickup out and put a jazz pickup, put like a funky pick guard. We put a, a star guitar, which was a company back in the day that made preamps and bridges and all that stuff. He put a star guitar preamp and that was my bass that I, I had. That was my, the bass that I would have played into today if it was not been stolen from me. Ah, oh, that sucks. That was my welcome to New York. Uh, so that was my bass, but that's when I first met Roger in uh, December, 1982. I went to his shop. He took, he fixed the bass, he altered the bass. I picked it up. So now 84, I go back to, New I, I moved to New York and I start going to Rogers. Six months after getting to New York, I get that bass stolen from a, from a car. And now I spend the next, I will say two years, just in, in search of, uh, in Hunt of the Red October, like looking for a bass that will speak to me. And I will buy basses, have them for, you know, three or four months, sell them again, get another bass, you know, and every time I get a bass, it's like, I will go to Rogers, put a preamp, set it up, this and that, play it, and it's like, you know, gone, next one. So this went on forever, but now I'm developing a rapport with him that we know in each other. And there was a company from Japan called Moon yeah. Basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up getting one of their bases, which felt really good. And I had it altered. We put a preamp in it and stuff like that. And around that time, that's when I started playing with Spyro Gyra. So my first tour and record with them, I used that Moon Base. And I was happy with that moon base. So at the end, I think it was like 88 or 89, Roger st started making his own instruments because- I he thought you were gonna say, Roger stole your bass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been a twist. Yeah. Uh, around that time, Roger started making Sadowski basses. Okay. And uh, he came up to me and he said, listen, I'm gonna start making my own line of stuff. And want to see if you will be interested in being one of uh, the artists. And, you know, we already had known each other for a good four or five years and stuff. I'm starting to get, you know, I have made my round in New York City and move myself to a position where, uh, you know, I don't want to say a household name, but, you know, one of the players in town, people knew you and all that stuff. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And he said, but this is a deal. I'm not going to build you a base. I'm going to keep on building the stuff. Whenever you find one that you like, that's your base. So for the next six months, I will go with his rod. His shop was right on Broadway 
and near 48th Street, which used to be the, the mecca of music stores in New York back in the day. And I will go on a weekly basis. What do you got? Well, we built it. And this is when he was building one, maybe two bases a week, if, you know. So it was a, a mom, mom's and pop shop. You know, he had fewer employees working. And I kept on trying bases. And I, okay, okay, no. One day I walk in and I played that black bass. And I said, okay, this is, the, this is my bass. And he goes, okay, well, that's yours. And that, that's my Sadowski that I still have to this day. So that bass uh, just spoke to me since day one. Like whatever it is that 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 click, that light goes on, that 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 affinity of I get this. This is what I'm hearing. It's a, you know, we all hear like this tone in our head that we're looking externally. So we spend our life like junkies trying everything <laughs> to replicate what you only can hear yourself somewhere in the outside. And that's how I felt. It's like, oh my God, this is it. So took that bass and then started playing it. That, that's been my main instrument for the last, what, almost 30 something years. Amazing. Amazing. Yep. What are your choices uh, for amps and effects and strings and stuff? Uh, amplifiers, I, I've been, you know, I have tried, I'm, I'm, the, I'm one of the kind of people that when I find something I like, I have no problem like having, you know, albacore uh, tuna with, uh, with arugula salad for the rest of my life because I like it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's good to me. I like it. And, you know, the people will go, but try something different. Why? I like this. It's fine. You know, so when I, when I first, I, I know my first tour, big tour that I did uh, with Spiral, I was using a Galleon Kruger in Gil Harkey speakers. You know, this gives you an idea of where we're at. I think it was the RB800 and the aluminum coil speakers. And I did a show with the Yellow Jackets, prominent band from here, California. And Jimmy Haslip was the bass player with the band. And he had a, an amplifier called SWR. Right. And, you know, I'm playing and I'm thinking my tone is good and everything. And when the jacket started playing and he started playing, I was like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I immediately went like, you know, little kid, like the mouth got shut and the lips came up. What, it, what is that? So I go up to him and I said, dude, that amplifier sounds, you know, you sound amazing, but the amp, and he's going like, and, and Jimmy is like one of the nicest guys, still one of my dear friends until this day. And he's like, hey man, you know, this is a company from California. They're starting, uh, you know, when you guys come to LA, let me know, I'll take you. Man, like six months later, we were in LA and I called him up and said, can we go to the amp company? And he took me and I, I met the late Steve Robbie, okay. founder of SWR. So that's how my relationship started with SWR. I, I uh, started playing their amps and pretty much stuck with them until they sold the company. And then they went through like, you know, like everything. You sell the company as new people, new changes and stuff like that. One of the persons that helped the beginning at SWR was Eden. Mm -hmm. 
And then he, he has started eating uh, amplification. And a person that we know in common, some a guy called Daryl, Daryl something, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> I, think we, we, I think we might know him, yes. Yeah, my, my brother, Daryl Anders, was working with uh, Eden at the time with the company. And he asked me, you know, what are you playing? Da, da, da. And so I joined Eden Amplification. And I spent some time with them. <laughs> Next thing you know, the same thing. They sold Eden to a bigger corporation. And so now I'm like levitating and floating. Aguilar Vacation got started literally the door across from Roger Sadowski's shop because the building that Roger used to be for many years on Broadway, 1600 Broadway, I think so. His door, you open the door, take three steps, and that was Alex Aguilar, which is the founder of Aguilar Amplification. I will say for the better part of maybe three to four years, I was their guinea pig as far as pickups, preamps, everything that uh, Alex was building, they would throw it in one of my bases. I would try it out, test it, tell them what was going on. And that's how I got uh, to knowing Alex. So eventually Alex meets Dave Bunshoff and they start Ag Aguilar Amplification. So okay. I know the comp, I know the, the and, I, and David, uh, Dave was a bass player in New York City when I met him back in the day, you know, Bunshoff. So we known each other for God knows how long. So eventually, we connect, we start doing things, and I joined their roster, and I've been with, with Aguilar ever since, so it's been a few years now. Uh, same thing with strings. I have played La Bella strings for a long time, and then Daryl, when they started doing Dunlops, he, you know, he kept on like giving me things to try out and stuff. And strings is something very interesting for me because I have, I have shared this with a lot of my peers and I said, for whatever reason, it's like the most like crazy of things. There's certain strings that don't react well with instruments. Don't ask me why this is, and this goes back from when I used to play uh, GHS and some, some bass I had to put Dean Markley or, or I played uh, the Adarios and I had to put another bass, you know, you know like, I, it, it's gotta be something, the, the way that this metal resonates with this wood, I don't know. So I have, although I had played uh, La Bella strings for a long time, but I have some basses that I put on uh, my Dunlops and they sound completely different. And it's like, okay, you know, this is, uh, this is what I need. This is what this guy wants to play. You know, it, he will sing with this. Right on. So it, uh, it, it creates that 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 crazy dynamic, and it. it's like there's not one size fits all. You gotta be open minded as far as trying this and and hearing it and going like, oh, okay, this well, this definitely sounds different this way than them with this way, and uh, you know, basically one one bass with a couple of uh, other bases that you're always looping around, amplification strings and. Uh, Move on. Let's go. All right. So no effects. Do you use the effects? Oh, effects. I do. I have, um, I've been using, well, I have my MXR Octaver chorus. Uh, I just recently got a, uh, a 1975 jazz bass mm -hmm. 
and I needed, I didn't want to put a preamp on it. I want, because a lot of, I will say 80% of all my instruments are active. I wanted to keep this passive. But then uh, I got the MXR, like the, what I said, the thumb, thumb booster. Yes. Yeah. And and that thing was like, Oh, made, you know, it, like, made it sparkle, right? It, it just made it humpy. Like, you know, yeah. like, okay. <laughs> like, you know, sing louder for me. <laughs> uh, got that. And I also have, uh, there's a company, uh, Nordstrom, Carrie mm -hmm. Nordstrom, which does incredible stuff. And I had put some of the pickups in, in, on my instruments and he has a DI slash preamp that is, a, I, I have it set up in, in my home studio as my di box that i love okay very cool yeah all right so who are you excited about with the uh the whole new crop of young players man there's uh there, there is a a whole bunch of uh people out there that but what i like to see is uh the different routes that people take and if if you know if you've seen like from say the stanley clark days influencing the marcus miller days to the marcus miller days influencing uh other players that come down to the victor wooten days and you know the victor wooten days influencing some so generationally you will see that there's like a style or something that, that you know, and of course, then you got the 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 uh, the Jaco side of all the people that wanted to go more melodic, fretless, uh, stuff like that. I I sit down and I go like, okay, I I, I hear what you're doing, I like it. I'm you know you're going that direction. Uh, I remember seeing, um, oh my god. What's Matt's last name? Gonna kill me. Uh, bass player from New York. Garrison? Gonna, Garrison, Matt Garrison. Yeah. Yes, I remember seeing him uh, as a young little guy playing around and then he started going harmonically somewhere else and it was, I was like, Okay, you know, now he's very well respected guy. Uh, I saw Tao Wingfield when she would just sit at Sadowski booth and, you know, play a little thing and, you know, Jeff Beck later and Prince and all that stuff. So <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, it's inspiring. It's nice to see the development of some of these people that you just saw at the early stages and how they just you know first were uh, uh like hey how you doing nice and then next thing you know it's like oh okay and and they're gone. It's, hey good for you thundercat i used to see his i you know play with his brother a lot with ron bruner drummer and thundercat will be around and you know next thing you know he's like opening for the red hot chili peppers right so yeah there's there's always all this generational movements of, of people that start taking things in their own way and interpreting them and going out and, and, and making it a different dimension of what's going on. That's awesome. I love Thundercat. 
and uh, Matt Garrison as well, Tal as well. There you go. All, all amazing players, yeah, for yep. sure. Um, man, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I only have a few more things, but talk uh, to me. Talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into? We were talking about, uh, or you mentioned film scoring. How yes. did you get into that? Well, uh, listen, I, I I feel that I always have fought very hard to be uh, thought of as a musician than a bass player. And people will like look at me and say, well, what's the difference? It's like a musician is a person that is more well-rounded. Like you do a lot of things you know, musically involved. Mm -hmm. A bassist, you may be thought as just the guy that plays bass. And since I was in high school, I was the guy writing the songs, you know. I, I will come up with the little part and hand people, their, you know, here, you play this part. And I'm arranging, I'm producing, I'm telling, in other words, I'm telling people what to do. You know, that's my fault. I'm always uh, trying to get things going my way. So, <laughs> That created a natural interest in in uh, in doing more of what I eventually uh, been doing, which is writing and producing and arranging and stuff. And it's always kept you in in, uh, in the picture as uh, I, I want not a renaissance person, but like more of a versatile thing because I'm involved in projects in different capacities. I've, sometimes people have called me just to arrange strings for uh, some of their songs in a project. Okay. I can do that. Uh, yeah. Some other people call me to make a chart for them for this stuff. I do that. Uh, some people want me to play bass and, and uh, figure out if I can write a bridge for theirs. I mean, like, that's how I like to be viewed. Like I can contribute in different ways to the whole picture of what's going on. Right. So that, that was what kept me, but it came naturally. It wasn't like something that I'm going like, okay, now I need to produce music. Now I need to arrange songs. No, just like something that I always have loved to do and gone down that way. And film scoring has one, it was one, one thing that I always have loved because, uh, the idea of looking at an image and then letting that tell you what is it that you feel that will convey what the image is trying to do is always, I always call it like you're a tailor and you look at a person and you know, this person doesn't look good in pinstripes because he's, you know, you know, I can't put no horizontal lines on you because you're too white. You start <laughs> looking at things differently and try to enhance what you see or oh, like nice, nice skin tone. Let me, you know, I can play, you can use some pink, you can use some earth tones. That's what film scoring is. You stop, you don't, you're not writing a song for yourself, which when I'm doing that, you know, I may want to get crazy on, on, on the rhythm or get crazy in the harmony. No, no, this is like, you look at something and you do whatever's best for that. And that's the art. That's the art of finding out not exactly what you will love to hear, but you know that that simplicity works for that. And that's what film scoring and, and, uh, and, and general and titles. That's very cool. Very, very cool. I, you have your solo records as well, but what's next for you? Well, I, uh, I've been 
I, throughout this whole little well, the pandemic, I, mean, I don't know if you heard about it. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Tell me about that album. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, we all had enough time to think and analyze and psychoanalyze and everything. So I been trying to figure out how to put new material out there, but in a different format, different way, because I feel the the conventional way of putting a project together and packaging it and releasing it and all that stuff, that's pretty much like old world. Uh, Interesting. The people, that, the people that pretty much can do that is like big labels, which they have all the machinery behind them to be able to supply this or promote it or to put it in enough platforms where people will go. Besides, I will say easily 80 to 90% of people don't buy any physical stuff anymore. Everything is a download. Everything is a stream. Everything is, um, you know, uh, nothing but a physical purchase per step. So my whole idea has been, I'm right now creating enough content that I can start putting out individually. So it generates an interest that people can go like, Oh, what is this? And then they'll listen to that. And you know, the visuals now are almost as important as the audio. So you got to put some visual to it. So you got to make a video for a song. The video has to be interesting enough. So people want to see the video, then they listen to the song. The whole thing is just that the, the next project that I'm working to release, it's, it's, I'm structuring it in a different way that I done my previous projects. So it's one of the, I'm going to package it at the end. Once okay. I have fed everything out and everything has been put out there, then we consolidate it and put it in a, in a presentation of like, you know, if you still want to get all this together, it's here. But now what I'm doing is little by little trying to feed it out. And that's, and what is very key is that you need to have everything or like all your ducks lined up because you can like take a gap that can kill the whole momentum. So I'm, I'm trying to put enough stuff together that once I start throwing them out and, and feeding it to the whole system, people listen to something and they go, oh, that's good. And then once it starts to almost fade away and now oh, you throw the next one and then that respark the interest. And now you got two things rolling. And now with these two things, people are gonna start finding out, is there anything more? And then you throw it, that's the whole idea. Got you. That okay. is one. And the other one is, uh, I'm going to do a live album. Yeah. Of all this, because so many people that have seen the project throughout the years, uh, when they go and see the, the band live, uh, the end, as much as I try to put into the recordings and stuff like that, live, it always goes to another that's level. my favorite that is my favorite thing about seeing a, a band or an artist live is when they can bring that energy uh to the stage where it just blows away the records not that the any records are bad or there's no you know that's what's drawing you to the live show but but when you can do that that's amazing well, it's 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 a typical case that you know when you're in a, in a recording and you know, like in a, in a tame environment where you're recording something, and you you know you 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 want to you do you do your best to make the best recording possible and cre and put all the stuff that you're looking for, but that key element of 
audience, adrenaline, live, you know, the moment that can only be generated one way, doing it that way. So you take songs that people have heard, they're familiar, they like and stuff like that. And now you go play them live and you get the feedback of the people. And, you know, and now you try to like dig a little bit more and, and it becomes that thing. Now that same song that people liked and loved in a recording takes another live of its own and people like and love even more live because it was like, oh my God, they, they went crazy. So <laughs> that's, a, that's the plan of doing the live album. Badass, man. Well, I cannot wait to hear and see all that you're doing. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, what, you've done so many great things um, with your career and you mentioned you were, you were uh, coaching your kids baseball team, which has got to be amazing. I did it for the first time. I was able to uh, last year. So, oh, Lord. Uh, I was home, so I, I had so much fun. I was an assistant. Okay, I helped out. I wasn't the main yeah. coach, but I did. But it, it, that experience in itself was amazing. But would yes, you, sir. Would you, uh, you want your son to follow in your footsteps? Well, this is... Uh, this is the 64,000 penny question. Um, <laughs> this is, and, and this I'm saying, I'm gonna say this from the most deepest part of my heart, because I, I had this conversation, funny enough, with my wife not too long ago. And ever since he's been born, my wife has been, you know, she's been around, you know, we've been together long enough. She's an artist herself. So she knows the uh, importance of the right side of the brain, you know, all those connectivities that art itself create that helps the other side of the brain, the intellectual, the logical and all that stuff. So she's always been, are you going to teach him music? Is he going to learn music? You know, music is going to help him. He doesn't have to be a musician, but it helps him with, you know, it's like, listen, nobody taught me anything. Nobody pushed me. I wanted, you know, once I found it, it's my mind. Okay. So, he started middle school last year and you know by then he already had had bass guitar drums keyboards in his room you know everything i just like i throw it there like like setting it up like oh look it's a drum set you know and he like i, I remember coming one time from one gig and i walk in his door at night and the drum set is like like John Bannon played it and, and it was like, <laughs> oh, I guess his gig was rougher than mine, you know, <laughs> but he never like said anything. So he starts middle school and two weeks into middle school, we're having dinner and he goes, uh, I signed up for orchestra. Wow. Okay. And we, and we look at each other and I'm thinking the first thing that I'm thinking is like, he's going to play the freaking oboe. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, like I'm happy in one end and then I'm going like, he's playing the cymbal, oboe. I mean, like, and so I hesitant ask, so what are you going to play? And he looks at me, he goes, duh, the bass. Awesome. Yes. And you heard a heartbeat again. Dun -dun, dun -dun. <laughs> so this was uh, August of last year, 2021. December came around. He played his first concert, the orchestra, three songs, Boeing. The, I mean, like, oh, I was the Magdalena crying in the audience, uh. <laughs> like, you know, trying to, I'm weeping, trying to pretend that I'm like, Mr. More like, 
this is the freaking kid in three months. I, I didn't do that like in a year. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if I mentioned it through this whole thing, but throughout the years, I developed a close friendship with Stanley, Stanley Clark. And he's okay. been a big brother, a mentor, a friend for many, many years. He, he even went to Mateo's baby shower. Oh. So he would have been really good. So he's always been asking me, so how's Mateo doing? Is he, uh, is he playing? Uh, so finally, when I told him, yeah, he took out the bass and he's oh, great. He kept on saying, bring him over, bring him over. And I was like, oh, you know, you know, he just started Stanley. But Stanley really likes to teach young kids. That's one of his, 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 his gift is to like get people going the right way. So at the beginning of this year, he already had been playing for like a good eight or nine months. I took him to Stanley and you know, he's complaining because he doesn't know who Stanley is. And he, he knows him, he's seen him, but he's going like, yeah. well, we got to go so far. Who is this guy? You know. So we get there and he's like, hi, Mateo. You know, and he started playing. And the moment that he took the first note with the bow and stuff, Stanley turns around and looks at me and goes, hmm. He made him do exercises and stuff like that. This went on. I mean, we went for like a lesson. Hour and a half into this, they're still going at it. And, he, and Stanley takes another bass out. They're back and forth. We get in the car, we're driving home, and then he calls me and he goes, dude, I'm going to tell you this. He's my student. Wow. I don't care what you say, he's going to be my student. Unbelievable. And you think I'm going to argue that? So <laughs> he's been, besides school, his private teacher is Stanley Clark. And, uh, you know, God bless his soul. It's like, so I, great. I'm, I'm dad. Anything I say is dad telling you something. Right. At least this guy, you know, he listens to him. And uh, so, yeah, I think he's doing pretty well. And I honestly believe that us as parent, it gets to a point at some, some a point in your life that you go, if everything that I have gone through, everything I learned, everything I done is just to be able to outfit this other human being to be much better then my mission is accomplished. I don't care. You know, it's, I stopped, it stopped being about me long time ago. So mm -hmm. now every possible thing that I can give him all the tools, guidance and stuff. If you're the one who's supposed to be the really good bass player, then go ahead. Uh, you know, I'm here just to make that happen. And that's my God honest feeling is like now, I, I do my things and stuff, but it's like, dude, let's make this happen. Man, amen to that. That is yep. absolutely amazing. So great, man. Yeah. Listen, Oscar, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the Bass Freaks podcast. Hey, I thank you. I thank you guys. I thank Don Lap. I thank my brother Daryl for all of this. And uh, please keep it up. You know, the community, uh, the, the bass brotherhood always appreciates and loves this company and getting insight and being able to, uh, you know, listen to what other knuckleheads have to say. <laughs> On that note, thank you guys for listening into the Bass Freaks podcast. Stay healthy, spread love, uh, spread joy, kindness, good vibes and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path, whatever it may be, and just play. Uh, until next time, cheers and a huge thank you to Dunlop for making this show possible. Make sure you check out the Bass Freaks podcast wherever you get your podcasts.